Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. My aspiration is that it should sound right. And if it sounds right, I tend to believe that it, that it is right, or as right as it can be. When I translate the work of other people, the crossing is fraught with a sense of greater trepidation because of the enormous responsibility that is bound up in the act of translating the work of another person, of, a, of an actual other and not a constructed other. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped 
across, like a threshold, into something new. And the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. When we were first thinking about this little micro unit, one of the first people I thought of that I wanted to talk to was Jhumpa Lahiri, who is the author of a number of books that I just love, including Interpreter of Maladies, which won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, The Namesake, The Lowland. Um, But the reason why I wanted to talk to Jhumpa for this section is because in her sort of midlife, already an established writer, novelist, she decided to learn Italian, taught herself Italian, and then began writing exclusively in Italian. She's now published two books in that language, and most recently has just come out with a collection of essays about translation. We talked about growing up, moving between multiple languages, the sensory and intellectual work of moving from one language world to the next, and her first experience of translating her own work. Well, in general, I think, you know, I mean, the older I get, the less uh, I I believe in this idea of perfection or perfecting anything. I, I think I'm moving, I've moved uh, into rather a sort of emphatic exploration of imperfection. Um, at, at the same time, there's the impulse, you know, to, to, to connect and to cross and, and to communicate with, with the other and to not feel this sort of state of suspension. Um, you know, the cover of this book is, um, it's intended to be, a uh, to suggest a female Janice, right? That he, Janice is, I, I talk about Janice in the book as well. Um, he's the God of, he's the Roman God of, of thresholds among other things and, 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 and of comings and goings. And I think what that very, uh, acutely suggests is, is an ongoing state of instability. And I would, um, I would add of imperfection and it is, you know, I mean, I, I talk about this with my students, whether they're writing or translating, right, whether they're writing their own work or translating the work of others, we try to reach, we aim, we aspire to reach that, um, um, that, other, that other shore, right, that other text, that other language. But we always fall short. And it's the attempt, it's the work, it's the labor. It's the attention, it's the attitude that we have in the crossing that I think we have to put our energy into acknowledging that uh, we won't hit it uh, perfectly. And even if we hit it pretty well, other people will also are, are completely, you know, I mean, the, the, the wonderful thing about translation in any case is um, that, that there's no definitive translation and others will join you and others will add uh, will make their own crossings and 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 broaden the perspectives and the possibilities of how to communicate with that other. Um, but I think I think in my case, because of some of the um, recent activities um, I talk about in the book, namely uh, translating myself, then I become the other. Then I become the other, and I am the other. And so I've been sitting with this idea for for some years now of uh, how the act of writing 
in a new language and then working back into uh, a previous, uh, more dominant, previously learned, more dominant language, uh, you know, how, what, what this is really um, churning up. And I think the only thing we really can perfect is the, that, that notion that we, we can construct others inside of ourselves and we can continue to dig deeper inside of ourselves, or at least we can, we can aspire toward that. Again, perfection is a word that I'm very wary of in this, in, in general, um, but, but especially in recent years. I'm curious, hearing you talk about the, that the way you make an attempted crossing is, is perhaps the thing to, to be focusing on as opposed to the eventual perfection or imperfection of, of the outcome of that crossing. It made me curious to know, um, or to hear you talk here about what your values are towards towards that crossing, towards the way you want to, to translate, um, or to reach out to the other. I'm, I'm curious to hear if you have an, like an ethics of that for yourself. Mm, Interesting. Well, I mean, the other illuminates the other jostles us and, and makes us reconsider, uh, our assumptions our sense of ourselves. And this is very important. The other allows us to see ourselves differently. This is, this is key. And in some sense, that's what a translator is doing, right? Every time a text is translated, that text is recreated, rendered in another language and seen differently, read differently, and literally um, kind of clothed and manifested differently which is so exciting, which is so rich, which is so ethically rich and politically rich as well. And so I think, you know, if we're t- going to talk about sort of the philosophical dimension of the, the idea of and the act of translation, I think it's, it's there, I think. But I think we have to also consider the attendant um dangers and and the the unapproachable nature in the end of that other you know um i think it's sort of like you know our need for the sun and we need that and our planet needs that and we all need that to, life needs that to survive but we can't approach it uh you know we have to keep our distance right? We can't fully approach it. Um, so I think it's a very complex question that you, you pose about, you know, um, about what this really means. Um, but I, I think that for, for people who translate, for people who, at least speaking for myself, uh, people who write, people who create, I think we're, um, keenly uh, thirsty for, for other experiences as well as our own, 
right? Or other other refractions of our of our own experiences. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if I'm really answering your question, but it it's very provocative. No, I I think you I think you are answering the question. Um, you answered you answered in a in a way that was perhaps more broad and philosophical even then I I sort of dared to hope you'd go <laughs> I was there was a part of me that was just that was also just asking when you when you are sitting down to translate say translate yourself where you're the other um how what are the what are the ideas that you are bringing to the page about what a good a good attempt looks like encountering a verb that could go many different ways i i really work so much by instinct by touch and feel and in the case of writing or translating by by sound and so my my aspiration is that it should sound right and if it sounds right i tend to believe that it that it is right or as right as it can be i think that when i translate the work of other people the crossing is fraught with a sense of greater trepidation because of the enormous responsibility that is bound up in the act of translating the work of another person, of, a, of an actual other and not a constructed other, right? So if I say, you know, if I cite Hambo and say, je et un autre, you know, I am, I is the other, um, that's a construction and that's very stimulating and exciting and, um, and, uh, and speaks to me, but I know that that's a constructed other, right? Um, or a, an imagined other or a symbolic other, if you will. Um, whereas if I'm translating Ovid or Domenico Starnone or whomever, that is very, uh, I, I am, I'm, that is another person, another consciousness, another soul, another uh, another author's words and thoughts. And there, so there's the responsibility that I don't have when I'm translating myself. So when I'm translating myself, I try to re-engage with, so in my case, I'm translating myself out of Italian back into English. Um, though that even that, that word back is kind of deceiving because it's not a return. As I say in the book, you know, there is no return in some sense at this point for me, but you know, um, so I'm translating myself now into English and, and, and I just did this. I just spent a couple of weeks feverishly translating some new stories in my new book of, uh, my new book of stories, which I've written in Italian. And it was very interesting. I wanted, I didn't need to translate these stories into English right now. The English edition will come out at a later moment. I'm, I'm now just 
I'm simply preparing the book for an Italian publication in in the fall. But I, it occurred to me that the best way I now, the, the, the sharpest instrument I now have, the most effective instrument I now have for editing my own work in Italian is to translate it into English, is to render it other. Because in doing that, I am forced to reckon with every sentence, every word, every every stroke of punctuation. And it's extraordinary, it's grueling, but it's extraordinary in its efficacy. So that's what I've just been doing over the past couple of weeks. And honestly, it's it's that idea of of sound and is it sounding right? And of course, am I getting the basic information of the sentence, sentence by sentence, onto the page? So is it, you know, is 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 what needs to be there to tell the story in its specifics uh, being recreated? Yes, check. And that, but then the greater question is, does it sound right to the English language speaker and reader and writer inside of me? Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. While you were talking, I was thinking about the fact that you've spoken about and written about the fact that you have been a translator forever, for, you know, even longer than you've been a writer, because you've been in the act of translating one language to another since you were really young. And also in this book, you write about the way that your evolving relationship with translation has has deepened your relationship with language and with individual words. And you refer several times to your thesauri, to your thesauruses, um, and the way that they kind of help lead you into those, sifting through those kind of deeper and deeper relationships with individual words. And I was wondering if you could tell me about um, your your these this this the thesaurus that you work with or the multiple multiples of them and what your how you practice with them um and how you think about them as part of your writing life yeah well i mean i think you know i started off as perhaps many people of my generation did with a red paperback roger in high school and 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 i built my collection from there. And I have now various volumes in English and in Italian. And of course, they're always accompanied by 
my dictionaries because they are, you know, one can't really exist without another. And sometimes a dictionary is as rich as a thesaurus. And, and a thesaurus can also provide information along the lines of a dictionary. I think what excites me, what's always excited me about uh, the thesaurus is the idea of alternatives. And I think I, I maybe talk about this in one of the essays. I'm not fully remembering, but I, I think in that essay about uh, that's called Lingua, and I talk about um, the, the uh, dictionary of, of Tomaseo, um, and, and, I, and I talk about how, in some sense, a thesaurus is, is performing, performing, sorry, performing the act of internal translation, sort of intralingual translation, if you will, because it's turning a word into other words in the same language, right? So, I mean, my reference book, uh, my reference book collection is now kind of in three categories, right? So I have monolingual dictionaries. So I have Italian dictionaries that have all the definitions in Italian or English dictionaries that have definitions only in English. Then I have the cross, you know, the English Italian dictionaries. And then I have the, the thesauri in either English or Italian. And honestly, I am constantly consulting all of these volumes and um, running. I mean, you went to Princeton. I'm, you know, I, I haunt the uh, trustees reading room and I go to those dictionaries, uh, the various sets of dictionaries um, constantly, but especially when I'm translating and I urge my translation students to, to, to uh, befriend these volumes and to learn to have a lifelong relationship with these volumes. And um, I mean, I've always loved uh, best reading writers who have driven me to set down the book and understand better the words they're using, understand better their meanings. So whether it's you know, a writer like Nabokov, whom I read first when I was a Barnard student, or uh, Primo Levi, uh, whom I teach here at Princeton in English translation. Um, you know, writers with such a such rarefied relationships to words and what they mean, and uh, and certainly translating a writer like Domenico Starnone. Um, has caused, you know, has, 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 has enabled me to, to, to discover so much about the Italian language. And now with Ovid, um, you know, I actually just yesterday ordered myself, um, now that we're almost at book five, I ordered myself the, the two volume Oxford Latin dictionary for myself so that I don't have to go to the library all the time <laughs> and 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 look up the meanings of words because I mean I just I could read that dictionary for 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 hours because you know you you look up one word in Latin and then you have seven pages of meaning you know and and sometimes those meanings are uh, wildly contradictory and so fascinating and and you know, it's 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 just a, a journey that is ongoing, the journey to 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 
to understand language. It never ends. It never ends. I mean, I, it doesn't end for me. I'm not satisfied, you know, and I, and because language is so, 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 so it has such transformative uh, capabilities, even within itself, even within the definitions, you know, across time, uh, across authors who use words differently. Um, so I'm, I'm always digging. I'm always, I'm always curious about what words can mean what they might mean. Um, it, it just, I find this one of the deepest questions for me and it, and it, and I, and I think it does have for me a sort of philosophical element, if you will, in that it, it, it throws up questions of alternatives and, um, multiplicity as opposed to, um, single truths throws up the, the, the idea of, you know, calls into question in a good way. Um, uh, the, the, the idea of, of multiple realities, multiple truths. Yeah. I loved, um, the essay where you were talking about the distinction, your preference for, um, forgive me, not ling, lingua, but is it ling, lingue? Ling, ling, the, yeah. Yeah. Um, the multiple languages, um, conceptually being, I don't, maybe you would be better at describing the distinction there than I would. So perhaps I'll just ask you to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, well, one of the things I'm trying to get out there is the idea of official language, you know, and what happens in places and societies and governments where one language is imposed and other languages, the other languages, the lingue are, um, are, are banished in some sense, you know, are no longer officially in circulation. So sort of what happens when, when dialect falls away and, and, and an official language is imposed, um, um, what happens when translations are, you know, when languages from the outside, when literature texts from languages from from uh, across the threshold are um, are prohibited, um, you know, the dangers of this. I'm talking about the dangers of this, and I'm talking about, and not only the dangers of lingua or language, the idea of a language, because but also the the uh, falseness of this, because there is no there is no neat, airtight contour to any language, and what we recognize is that all languages are born. All every how how should I put this? Each language is born from languages, and thrives and grows and exists due to a sort of ecosystem of languages, and that's what we need to put at the center. We, that we need to keep that multiplicity at the center, and not not um and to avoid the 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 impulse rather to sort of um you know diminish the the, the that multiplicity in search of a, a dominant language mm. yeah there i mean there are definitely philosophical and political overtones to that um to that set of ideas which is in you know i, I think that maybe the the average lay reader might not 
necessarily imagine that those that that such um foundational ethical and political ideas are happening in the act of you know translating a short story um and one of the the things that i see in this this book is really an argument that major uh interpersonal ethical political and even kind almost mystical things are happening um in the thesaurus or in the mind that is trying to move move language from one place to another i agree i agree mystical is a good word i agree i want you there's um that reminds me of a question that I'd been wanting to ask you because there's this lovely piece on Calvino in here that really points out that he seemed to conceive of translation as a kind of a mystical or spiritual reaching. Um, let me let me find this this moment that I'm thinking of, but. Argue, he argues that translation requires a sort of miracle, speaking of its secret essence. Uh, translation for him was a revelatory process to see and know himself from a new angle, from a foreign and alienating perspective. Um, that absolutely seems to infuse the way you write and think about it as well. But there was another thing that I noticed, which is that there were a lot of um, there were a lot of body metaphors in the way that you, when, when you were writing about translation and actually several like very sexy metaphors. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> translating means understanding above all how words slip and slide into each other, how they overlap, how they end up producing a fertile lexical promiscuity. And I wanted to ask you about um, translation and the body and translation and sexiness because those, those images seem to sort of come into your thinking about this work. Mm, how interesting. Yeah, well, um, I mean, I think language is, well, we know language is carnal, right? We speak because we have bodies. We have bodies that can, you know, produce the sound and move the air and, and our mouths and, and the tongue, the idea of lingua, tongue, you know, I mean, it's very, it's very basic in, in, in many languages, um, the, this uh, reference, uh, awareness of the bodily uh, dimension of, of, of language. And, um, and, you know, I have a friend, a translator friend uh, in Italy. Her name is Gioia Guerzoni. And she, I think she had a blog at some point or something. Um, anyway, she, some kind of column, but she, she was on a mission to talk about how translation is sexy. <laughs> and um, so I, it, you make me think of her. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's that idea of, um, you know, um, being very intimate with, with the other. Uh, so, you know, interpret that as you, as you will. But uh, it's a life force, you know, and it's generative. Translation is generative when languages um, connect, when languages uh, cross the threshold, you know, um, amazing things happen and, and literature 
um, proliferates. So in that sense, that's the fertility, that's the promiscuity, um, the, the nearness, the overlaps. Um, that's what's exciting about it. That's what's really thrilling and, and mysterious and energizing about it from my point of view. And sort of the last piece in this book, it feels like all of these ideas come together as you're describing beginning the translation of Ovid's Metamorphoses in the sense that that is an essay that is about transformation, both carnal and metaphysical and also linguistic. Um, Would you tell me about how the process of undertaking that that translation project um, changed changed you changed your relationship with with translation and maybe how that project is living now because as you as you mentioned it's it's ongoing. Well, the 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 thought of embarking on that translation was it, it really made me stop and think about the greater intellectual and creative migration patterns, if you will, at play in my life now for many decades, across decades. Um, and, and I was really struck. I was really struck that this opportunity uh, had, had come, had arisen at this point in my life to be able to go back to Ovid, to the writer who excited me most when I was learning Latin in college, and um, and 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 a, you know a writer, a poet whose language had really gone inside of me and become part of my my body. Uh, to go back to that idea, you know, language roots itself in our in our system, in our blood somehow. And, um, and, 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 and alters us from the inside. And so, um, but, but, but I, but I, but I undertook the project with, um, you know, a healthy dose of, 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 of sheer terror. I mean, uh, you know, the idea of embarking on such an enormous project in a language that I really don't know, um, with, 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 with the, with the solidity I wish I, uh, still had. I mean, when I was in college, I read Latin with a, you know, reasonable ease, shall we say. And I could, I could, you know, if summoned upon in a class, I could, you know, translate the lines or whatever, uh, because I was, I was in training uh, as a student, right? And I was, uh, I had that muscle, and then that muscle went, um, you know, was inactive, essentially, largely inactive for so long. So now I'm, um, I'm, I'm going back into that, and uh, back to that text, and in some sense, back to that time you know, back to 
a time when I was, we're talking about 30 years ago, more, uh, when I was first reading Ovid and, and sort of how my re-engagement with Latin is also pushing and altering what I've, what I think I've come to know about my learning and understanding of Italian. So there are sort of, there's a chain of, 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 um, changes in, in, in things that I think I've come to sort of comfortably assume or safely assume and all pointing at the basic question of the inherent instability of life and of language and of our days and of our time. And so it's, it's very powerful to engage with, with a poem like that at this point in my life. And, um, and then as I describe in the book, uh, strangely uh, paired both beautifully and, and, um, and painfully paired with, with, uh, with, with the loss of my mother, which was one of the, well, certainly the most um, uh, upsetting transformation of my life to date. I was so struck by the way that you refer to the act of beginning the translation of Ovid as something that really reframed the way you saw and experienced your mother's death. Could you, would you be willing to tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that was the only way I could read what was happening. The only way I could make sense of what was happening was to translate the physical reality into an act of transformation, which I suppose from a medical standpoint isn't inaccurate, right? Because we do, our bodies do alter in the course of dying. And and so there was something about what was happening to her and what the doctors and nurses were explaining what, what was happening to her and was about to happen to her on the way to, as she was on the threshold, right? As she was on the threshold between life and death. And when you watch a person die, you are so aware that they are on the threshold and you accompany them across the threshold. And in fact, when my mother was dying, one of my friends said to me, you have to, you have to accompany her to the other side. You have to, you have to, you have to help her across. And that, this was an Italian friend of mine. So she said this in Italian and, um, and, and that, was I realized, okay, this was my purpose as her, as her child, as her daughter, I was going to survive her and I had to accompany her to the other side and leave her there and then return. Right. And, and this, 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 you know, of course we think of so much literature, uh, that has, that has worked in this vein, that has imagined this vein in, in, in such, such, extraordinary detail 
and uh, with such imagination. Um, so that's what I thought. I thought, okay, she has to cross this threshold and she's changing and she's going to continue to change until she's on the other side. And because I had been translating Ovid for, a, uh, well, how long? A couple of months at that point, you know, three months or so. I was aware of how Ovid, how attentive, or I was made re-aware, because I remember this from reading him back in college, how he really, you know, sits down and breaks down for the reader those moments, those bodily moments of transition for his characters, sort of what happens to a character's arms and legs and hair and, uh, you know, fingers and, 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 and I suddenly, you know, well, I don't know if it was sudden, but I, but I, but it occurred to me in the end, you know, in the final sort of week of her life that she was undergoing metamorphosis and that this was both, um, you know, tra- a tragedy for me personally, but, but, a but, a but a remarkable and also magical, uh, and also natural, uh, process. So that was, that was the, the act of translation that Ovid, and if I, I, I you know, if, if I, if I hadn't been translating Ovid, I think I would have been, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been able to read what was happening that way and to be able to make some sense of something that is essentially lacking in sense, right? At least on the, on the emotional plane. Yeah. It really made me want to turn back to metamorphoses, which I haven't read since, I don't know, I think since I was in college, um, because it, I mean, it's just, that is such an incredibly beautiful and useful framework and and to me i think true framework for understanding what is happening when someone is is dying particularly in a, in a in a gradual way in a sort of the often the way that that happens with illness or with old age it it made me think a lot of my watching my grandmother die this last fall um and and wishing that i had been reading ovid <laughs> during during that time because i think that that is um those are important and obviously very old ideas that help us sort through the biggest the biggest translation slash transformation that we have to confront um, as living Absolutely. as living yeah. people. Absolutely. And I think the key is to remember that if we want, you know, if we are able to think of death as metamorphosis, it means by definition of the term that the individual is turning into something else. Maybe we don't know what that something else is. Maybe we can't see it. Maybe we can't engage with it, but transformation is happening. And in some sense, transformation is the opposite of death, right? Right. It's the opposite of, of what we think of the meaning of death. Now, again, we have to run to dictionaries and, and to the thesauri, right? To, right? to really get into this conversation, right? But if we, if we look up the word death, death as the 
loss of life, the end of life, the end point. Um, well, to think of death as metamorphosis challenges that definition. Right. You write, um, having to kind of remind yourself that there's no plot without change and that actually thinking of or understanding death as a, as a continue, as, as a change frames it as a continuation of, of plot <laughs> as a, as an, as evolution and, and forward movement, as opposed to, um, an ending per se. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, in a way it's, it's a sort of both, both are true. I mean, everything ends. We know that everything ends and nothing lasts. And, and, and that's certainly true. But we also know that we can, we can think about the idea that, well, actually nothing ends, you know, and everything is ongoing. And there is a, there is a fluid state, a uh, fluid energy that is coursing through existence. And I think that is off its palm. That is the, the, the driving sort of meaning and message if you will, of Ovid's work is this sort of eternally fluid um, energy um, uh, that is in the, 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 the palm in its first lines. He has that word perpetua, perpetual, um, which, is, which is key. And, and of course, what I now recognize a year later is that my mother's death, yes, was a metamorphosis for her on the bodily level, but a metamorphosis for everyone she left behind, right? So my life has changed. My father's life has changed. My sister's life has changed. Her friends' lives are changed, right? So we, real, we see how death produces change among the living, right? What, what I want to do essentially is to go as deeply and as exclusively at this point as I can inside of this work. And it's been, it's, it's a struggle because I have so many other things that I'm doing and thinking about and responsible for, but I want to live inside of this palm, uh, this coming year. Um, I will be in Rome for the year. I will be off from teaching, um, for much of that year. And, um, and, and I feel that what I want is that contact with the other, you know, even deeper contact with the palm and more consistent contact with the palm. And because it's a, it's a kind of totalizing experience. It ought to be because it's kind of a whole life system or this system of thinking, um, system of approaching life um this poem and 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 once you're inside of it you're you're transformed right you're you, you're transformed and i and i feel like right now honestly even if though i've been translating it for a year plus i still feel a little bit on the threshold of actually engaging with the poem and i think to really understand what i'm doing what we are doing what my um co-translator Elena Baraz and I are doing with this poem, I at least have to be all the way in. I have to cross that threshold. I have to clear the decks. I have to have daily contact with this, with this work. 
Um, I have to be, you know, surrounded in, in by my dictionaries and, um, and, and, and really make this, this journey as a translator and as a reader. Um, and I'm looking forward to that. I, 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 I need that to happen. I hope that will happen in, um, in the coming months. And I've been working very hard in recent months to, to be able to prepare the terrain for given that life is always happening. And, um, you know, I can't really repair to a mountaintop uh, in solitude <laughs> to work on this, but I'm going to try to create as much contact um, with the poem as I, as I can. Um, and just, and just move through it, uh, just, and this is, will just be the first pass of course, of moving through it and then sort of coming up for air and thinking about how does it sound. Thresholds is produced by Drew Broussard. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshimud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Lorelai Grossman. Special thanks to Justin Alvarez and our hosts at LitHub Radio. You can find out more about our show, listen to past episodes, and get in touch at our website. This is thresholds.com. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. Or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you normally listen, and subscribe and review us there. Thanks. We'll see you next week. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.